0: Us this morning, and Adam's going to be picking up on our God story teaching. Remember, Ian Nicholson was here last month. He was talking about the birth of a nation, and he spoke about Moses and his wilderness experience, and coming out of that, and just how we saw the foreshadowing of Jesus in in all these Old Testament stories. So, Adam is now picking up with Joshua, and this is the first in a two-part series on the rise and fall of Israel. So if I just pray for you. Father God, we just um, thank you for this morning, God, and we thank you to be able to come and gather without fear, God, to be able to... Um, hear your word, to, to remember your story, God, and find our place in that story, God. Mm. Um, we just thank you for Adam and all that he's invested in preparing for this morning, God, and we just invite you into this time, Holy Spirit, God. I just ask you fill Adam up, God, mm. and just may he convey your heart and your word for us this morning. May be, we listen with attentive ears and mm. open hearts, God. Your will be done this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. 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 Good morning. Good morning. Good
0: morning. Good morning.
1: Yeah. So, I'm Adam. Is this is here too much? Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Great. So I'm Adam. So I've uh, worked for Twenty Four Seven, just in terms of context, for seven years now. So a little while. So done a few roles with them. Started off doing comms for Twenty Four Seven. So. All The podcasts and videos and stuff, and then recently started doing operations, so running our events and some things like that, and I also worked for Emmaus a little bit um, but i 've been coming to Stanford for a little while, so it 's fun to come back, particularly because my wife Hannah, who will turn up with our little baby once her nappy has been changed in a few minutes, um, but obviously with, she ran the vision course and would come here so it 's fun it 's fun to come back but Here we are in the God story, and so I'd love to start, the way we're going to run today is I'm going to kind of do an overview of a few different things, but I spoke to Jill, and I said, Jill, what did you do? And so she gave me a rundown, and then I spoke to Ian, and he was like, well, I came, and then I felt really insecure straight away, because I was introduced by saying, last time we had Jill, who did really, really well, so I was looking to see whether or not you said, last time we had Ian, who did really, really well, but I didn't hear it, so I'm going to tell him. I'm sure Ian did really well, but yeah, I'll say last time we had Ian and he was here, so that was it. Great. So, but yeah, the way I'm going to do it, so I'm going to just throw out some questions. I remember one preacher once said we learn far more in dialogue than we ever do in monologue, and so that's what I'd love for us today. It's just a bit of dialogue around some of these things. But to start off, maybe we could just, for those that have maybe forgotten, set the scenes. We're landing into Joshua, but what has Happened up to this point? Like, Who are the key players that we've seen in the God story so far? Anyone start off with the first people we see in the Bible and then we'll see if we can kind of piece together the timeline and see where we are. Adam and, Adam and Eve. Perfect. So Adam and Eve came first. Obviously we know all about them, the garden, the sin, and then we see the next person is Noah kind of in the story. We move forward, the flood, God's kind of Justice on sin in the world, and then we land into the next person who God makes a covenant with. Anybody know who that is? Abraham, Abraham. Abraham becomes Abraham, absolutely, and Abraham has uh, a promise that God says that his descendants would be like the stars. Okay, and he would become a ble- He would be blessed and would become a blessing to all people. So then, Abraham has a son named Jacob. And Jacob is an interesting character in the Bible, and he wrestles with God. And he has his name changed to Israel, which is the name that suddenly becomes the name of the people of God. Which is really interesting as a side note, because Israel means to wrestle with God. So isn't it interesting that for us, the very name, I don't know if they looked at this, but the very name that our kind of legacy is known by is the people who wrestle with God. When you contrast that to Islam, which means to submit to God see the difference in what God's doing so there's obviously a few ways to read into that but I believe that God in his grace always knew that we might be a people who would have questions we'd come we'd struggle we'd make our way through and he accepts us knowing that we are the people that wrestle with God so we have Jacob Israel this guy and then he has 12 sons one of which is his favorite his second youngest called Joseph and Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt And then we hear the story go on and he becomes powerful, he's faithful to God, he goes to the prison. Pharaoh, he interprets James, he becomes the second most important person in the whole nation of Egypt, the whole kingdom of Egypt. And then finally he gets reconciliation with his family and there's a drought and so his family, his his brothers and his father move in and they're in Egypt. And then suddenly Pharaoh, they grow from 70 to something like 2 million in Egypt. And then a new Pharaoh comes along and he is angry about all these people in his land. And he turns them into slaves. And they're slaves for, anyone know how long they're slaves for in Egypt? 400 years. So 400. And that's going to be important for us later. Because the whole story we're about to land into is the movement of a people from slavery into freedom. And how do... How does God's people do that? How do you move from slavery into freedom? So it's one of the first questions we'll ask. We'll be looking at that. But jumping back into the story, they're slaves for 100 years. And then God raises up this man called Moses. And Moses leads them across the Red Sea. And they come into the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness for 40 years before we're about to see that a new person is raised up with the death of Moses, who is Joshua. And then that is where we're going to land in. But first of all, as this question, okay, so we have the Israelites are slaves for 400 years, okay? So if you want to put that in generations, that is a generation becomes slaves. Their kids only know slavery. Their kids only know slavery. Their kids only know slavery. And potentially, depending on the generations, maybe it's their kids who are led out of Egypt. And so you have a people here, generations and generations and generations. there's a story we're going to come to but you might have heard the expression you can bring the israelites out of egypt but can you bring egypt out of the israelites you heard that and so i wonder if to start off really quickly you could turn in a group maybe we're going to be in groups a few times so if you can twist your chairs and maybe get into like groups of four or five i'd love you to just kind of brainstorm really quickly what do you think that would have done to the people? What would years and years, when your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents have only known slavery, what would that have done to your mindsets? What are we landing into Joshua with these people? What is the kind of perspective, the cultural understanding, the cultural moment for these people who have known 400 years of slavery? Does that make sense? So yeah, if we could maybe turn and then we'll just spend three or four minutes on this. Okay, we'll do one more minute. Great. So any thoughts? Just because this is important for us framing. What you're about to see is that, unfortunately, in Joshua and then into Judges, stuff goes kind of from bad to worse. From the Israelites, and this is a really low time in the history of the people of God. But so much of that is based out of the fact of this systemic slavery that they've been a part of. So, any thoughts from anyone? What would it have been like for them? What would be their mindsets or what would have been built into them over these 400 years of
2: slavery? Mm. Say again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's their normal. Just
2: thinking uh, about 400 years or so, uh, working at our is about 12 to 15 generations. Yeah. So uh, how, how far can we be back to our parents, their parents, their parents? Yeah. And Unless you pass, you know, your history down really, really? Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. So forget, and then yeah, yeah. Who they are. Yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So all they would have ever known. Yeah, their only understanding of the world is being subject to someone else.
0: We use the word
2: institutionalized. Yeah. So totally. The Egyptians.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's stuff like their skills they would have known, they would have never had the chance to try lots of different things, they would have been born into a task that they would have done forced to do. Absolutely. An understanding could have been.
2: Absolutely yeah yeah
1: totally yeah 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 and so that's that interesting thing around they would have heard the story but their experience would have been so far apart from that so what does it look like to hold on to something the word of god the testimony of god when your experience is so different to that and has been but absolutely like chinese whispers yeah such a really important point because what you're going to see in a minute is actually constantly through the rest of the story god is saying remember 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 the testimony and then there's this slightly damning verse in judges where it says a new generation rose up and didn't remember god or didn't know god so yeah absolutely so try and keep that as we move forward in this try and keep that question constantly in your mind like And These are the people. And so uh, we're just going to read a bit. So we're launching here into Joshua. So if you have a Bible with you, maybe you could turn to Joshua uh, 1. And we're just going to read Joshua 1, verse 1, through to uh, the end of that little section, which is verse 9. And as I read this, I'd love you to think about what are some keys here. Well, first of all, what is the command that God gives to Joshua? And secondly, what keys can you hear in these verses for how Joshua can stay encouraged and fulfill the command that God has called him to do? Okay, so those are two things you're looking out for as I read this. So after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all these people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel." For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all that according to the law that Moses, my servant, has commanded you. Do not turn away from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be very careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what is the command to Joshua? Be strong, courageous, and take the land. Okay, so Joshua is a military leader you're about to see, and he is the person that's charged with the conquest. God's people coming into the promised land and casting out all of the inhabitants. And then, what are some keys that we see? So we see God give Joshua the command, and then He gives a few keys here for how Josh is to achieve that that He has been commanded to do. Did anyone pick up on any of those? Meditate on the law. Yes, there's something about obedience and meditation on the law. Yep. Don't deviate deviate from it. Yep. Courage. Courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a question about presence there. So when I was doing this to help, I put these into three Ps to help us remember. Because what you're going to find is that... Basically, it's these three P's that the people of God fail on through Joshua and through Judges. And that is, remember the promise. So what has God actually told Joshua he's going to do? And so for us, these are important as well. How do we remember the promise? How do we remember the presence? And how do we remember the posture? Okay? So we remember the promise. What has God promised us? What did God promise Joshua? Remember the presence, remember that he promised that he would always go with them, and remember the posture. The posture is to meditate on the Lord day and night, okay? So it's those three things that God commands of his people. And then this is what happens, and I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book of Joshua. So the book of Joshua happens in three movements, okay? Okay? The first movement is from chapters one to five. And in these, this, and in these chapters, this is what happens. Moses dies, we've just read, and God speaks to Joshua about what he needs to do. And then he commands them to obey the Torah, everything that we've just seen. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, he sends spies into the land. That's where we see the story of Rahab turning to God. Okay, so he sends spies into the land, similar to what Moses did, but this time it happens a lot better. And the spies come back, and there's Caleb, and he comes back with a positive thing. Yeah, with God, we can do this, okay? So that's one and two. Three and four, they cross, just like with Moses. Again, I feel that this is God encouraging Joshua that he is with him, just as he promised. They cross the River Jordan into Canaan. And chapter five, we have this really interesting thing This is going to frame the book. And that's where Joshua sees the angel of the Lord. Okay? So Joshua comes, and just before the war is about to start, he meets this tall, giant man, ready for war. And he says, are you with me, or are you with my adversaries? Do you know what the angel replies? Neither. 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 Why? Because what you're about to see is God is about to show his people that he's going to do what he promised. This isn't about God supporting Israel. This is about Israel supporting God. God is going to do it for them. And, all the, and what you're going to see is you're going to see two battles. One against Jericho and one against a place called Ai, Ai. And in one, they're called to just watch what the Lord does. And the other one, they're called to partner with what the Lord does. But the angel of the Lord is saying, God is going to fight your battle for you. This is what it means to be the people of God. Okay, so we see that in chapter 5. So that's the first movement, preparation. Okay, and then the second movement happens between chapters 6 and 12. And this is just full of battles with the Canaanites. Okay, so in the land, God is calling the people to just cast the people out of Canaan. And so in chapter 6, we see Jericho. Can you remember what happens in the Battle of Jericho? Yeah. Absolutely. So this is where they're called to march around the walls, okay, quietly, everything, and on the last time they're meant to give a shout, and the walls come down. So this is them seeing the deliverance of the Lord, okay. So that's great, huge success for Israel. And then what happens is they're then called to fight with Ai, I, okay, this place. This is the second battle. And this is chapter seven and eight. Anybody knows what happens in this story? Yeah, it's not good because there is one person in the camp, a guy called Achan, A-C-H-A-N. And now this guy, he steals from that what was offered to the Lord, okay? And so just before that, he steals from the, the offering to the Lord. And because of that, the Israelites faced this huge defeat from Ai. And it's only when they deal pretty severely with Achan, he dies, he's killed, And then suddenly they win the war. And so what is the message? What do you see between Jericho and I? You see, when you're obedient to the Lord, success. When you're not obedient to the Lord, success is not just taken for granted. Okay, so he's calling his people to obedience in these two and then in chapter nine we see uh, the Gibeonites repent. So this is interesting because the Gibeonites are another people group in Canaan. And so at the beginning you hear all this language, and it's to it's slightly genocidal language. It's like kill them all, Let, leave no man alive or anything. And so you can get this picture that you sometimes hear, especially nowadays, there's an apologetic around, you know, was God really into genocide? Actually, you need to understand that it's military hyperbole at the time. If you actually track the stories, they don't, and they're never expected to kill everyone. But there is just this language that's used in ancient writings all along. that They use this hyperbolic language of killing everyone just means that you, you have a victory over them. But the Gibeonites repent, and God is happy with that, so that's great. But then in chapter 10 and 11, the rest of the Canaanite kings see this, and they form a coalition Against Israel. Okay? And so suddenly all of the kings rise up against Israel. So that's the last movement. And then we see the way that this changes is that we just see this long, long list of all the battles that Moses and Joshua win against the Canaanites. So this ongoing war about how do you cast the people out of the Promised Land. Why is God wanting them to be cast, all these people out of the Promised Land? Do you know, like, what it is? Okay, I'm going to say, why? Have you ever noticed that humans are actually quite weak? You notice that? Like, biologically, we have no reason to be the top of the food chain. We've got bad claws, we've got bad teeth, we've got poor eyesight, we've got poor hearing, everything, we're quite slow. Why are we the top? It's because we don't adapt biologically. We're the one group that can adapt culturally. Okay, so we have the ability to build. We have the ability to adapt culturally to our surroundings. That is the success of humans. That is almost the thing that sets us apart from anyone else. But it's interesting when you jump that into this story, the reason that Jesus is saying, or God is saying, cast out all of the people, all of the Canaanites, is because he knows these are people who have been slaves, but they're also the people with the ability to adapt culturally. So what's going to happen? suddenly they are so used to being subject to the people around them that they're just going to culturally adapt to the people around them. Do you see? That's why idolatry becomes such a huge thing. Now, the problem was the people around them were incredibly evil. Number one thing that was happening was sacrifice, human sacrifice. Sexual immorality, like you just hear stories if you look around, there's this deep evil around, and God knows... Unless he tells them to be stand first and don't culturally adapt to the people around them, they will. And actually what you find is they don't cast everyone out like they're told to. And in Judges, you're going to see further and further into the story we get. The more they did what God always worried they would do and they culturally adapt and they can't become exactly like the people around them. Okay? So, between the third movement of Joshua... This is chapters 13 to 22. Joshua divides up the land. It's an incredibly boring piece of scripture. It's a little bit like reading a map with no pictures. Okay? It's just long lists of like boundary lines and cubits and all of that. But it's incredibly important because this is the fulfillment of the promise that has been 600 years in the making. That Abraham would be given a land that would become a blessing and would bless the other nations. So he divides it up around the 12 tribes of Judah. Okay? So we have that. And then finally, and if we jump to the end of Joshua, the very last movement happens in chapters 23 and 24. And it's a really interesting one because Joshua has seen what's happened. And he basically, he knows he's about to die. He's the leader of these people. And he sees what's happening and he gives them a choice. He says, basically in these two chapters, if you read them, choice one, Fulfill obedience to the Lord and see the promise come into fulfillment. Be blessed and become a blessing. Or compromise, be unrighteous, and watch divine justice come upon you. Okay? So that's the two stories you're about to see. And so if I read it, if we, maybe if we just read, if you jump into 23, you can read it Here. Uh, From verse 6. It says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just just as you have done to this day, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to fight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. So it's interesting, if you you read through, we don't have time for it, the whole of 23 and 24, you see basically this question that's put before the Israelites. What will you do? What will you do? And then you'll find in Judges that basically what they do is not particularly good. But before we jump into that, to kind of finish off Joshua. So Joshua, maybe we could get back into our groups. And Joshua is all about this thing around how do you stay pure? How do you stay true to God when you are aliens in a different land? If you jump forward to the New Testament, Paul uses the exact same language for us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, basically because you are aliens in this land. And so how do we hold this tension between we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, right? We're called to be in the world, bringing God's glory, God's goodness, God's kind of kingdom to this place. But at the same time, we read all the way through this warning that we culturally adapt so easily to the things we see around us. And so I wonder if you could just turn back in your groups and think, what, how do we live in that tension? As people of God today, where do we see our propensity to just culturally adapt? And how might we not just separate ourselves from the world, but be fully present in the world, fulfilling the great call of being blessed to be a blessing without culturally compromising like these did? Does that make sense? Great. Amazing. Maybe one more minute to finish off. Trying to thought that you're on. Okay. Any thoughts? We see this tension between, on one end, you know, trying to stay so pure that you just separate yourself entirely, and on the other end, just totally becoming and looking exactly like, culturally adapting to the world in which you live. How do we live in that tension today? Any thoughts?
0: Yeah. Or when people visit, you they might say, Oh, you really do this, you go, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. When well, you know, they realize, you come and talk into a certain type of way
1: of doing things to someone else. Totally. Yeah. So good. Amazing. Yeah. You think <laughs> of what you <Yeah>. said about biologically built in
2: for a stick gap to relate to the culture. I mean, when I first came to this country, I did speak about it. You see, they were speaking about it. <laughs> uh, I
0: had to adapt, I had to learn. Yeah, and
2: yeah, yeah. I had to look at people Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it's like, I mean, now that I know God as my savior. Mm. It's, like that, that it's, it's
1: good really about what renew transforming you. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's good. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, yeah, so helpful. Any other thoughts? I would imagine we won't crack this one today, but.
2: I was if, if we wanted to like stay, you know, pure, mm. using that, you know, following that line. Does that mean we have just two choices mm. to sort of like fight? Or is it you know like you say to or, or even is it to just make everyone like us? Mm. You know, are, are they are they our, our two choices? And is that what makes us isolated? Is that we were fighting against everyone, mm. or almost we're putting ourselves above everyone and thinking everyone should be like us? What do you think? I, I mean I hope there's some sort of we Yeah. It's very, very it's good. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. It's good. The the can be yeah. there is a redemptive purpose that God places the culture yeah. so on culture, So that model, it's not, you have to make everyone look like your version of Christian. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No. yeah it's good. What
1: God given in their the it's good. So to call that out. Yeah, it's good. Really good. To me, when I was looking at this, it's interesting, when we were about to read it, those three things, remember the promise, remember the presence, remember the posture, it's interesting that those are the three things that you're about to see that the Israelites fail on. They forget God, they forget the story of God, and they forget the teaching of God. And I remember someone talking, and I found it so helpful, it was incredibly simple, but... (laughs) She's just so... Talking about, you know the the moment where Jesus is baptised and he comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove? And they were talking and they were like, the interesting thing with all of this is if a dove was to land on you, literally, literally a dove comes and lands on your shoulder and your whole world becomes postured around not wanting the dove to leave, everything that you do is in relation to making sure that the dove feels at home, Right? The volume with what you talk, where you go, how you operate, how you move, everything. You're thinking, is the dove okay? Does it feel safe? Does it want to go? I wonder if we had the same intentionality around the presence of God. What would happen? Now, not the presence of God is fragile, but when you're sitting watching something on TV, do you think actually this is probably making the presence of God feel at home? Or is it maybe making the presence of God not feel at home? We've got a huge debate, I'm not even going to go into what we say, Game of Thrones, the phenomenon that's in this country. I'm not going to say what I think, but do you think the dove, when it's sat on your shoulder, does it feel at home when you're watching that? I don't know, it's up to you to work out. The way you do, the way you surround yourself with the things of God, it's just a really helpful, really simple illustration around how do you posture everything in life to make sure that the dove feels at home. And I think that's one way in which culturally it doesn't have to become one of these two dichotomies of even war against everyone or kind of the opposite. But how do we posture our lives to remember the promises of God, make the presence of God feel at home, and meditate on his word day and night? And actually meditating on his word day and night is what actually frames our thinking for what makes the presence of God feel at home. So just a thought to, to give you as we jump in now to Judges. Okay. So here we are in the story. Everyone's still good? Everyone keeping up? Great. So, judges. So now we're about to move into a period of the Bible which is really concerned with the leadership of God's people, okay? Kind of all the way back, there was this promise to Moses that God was wanting to become, was wanting to form a priesthood, a people which were a priesthood, right? And he would be their God, he would lead them, they wouldn't need another leader. Because that's what he was forming. What you're about to see is compromise and compromise in leadership, okay? But this happened in there was a period of judges. Okay, so we see that Joshua has divided up the land. So the twelve tribes have their different areas, and now every one of those tribes has what its called a judge. Okay? Don't think about like a courtroom judge with like a wig. Think about more like a tribal leader, like a military, political leader, okay? And every tribe had one. And what you're going to see is that, it's interesting, this book doesn't read like a novel, okay? It doesn't read like chapter 1, 2, ongoing. What you actually have is a few movements in this book, just like in Joshua. And in chapter 1, you kind of... Chapter 1 talks about how Joshua had told them to cast out the Canaanites... But the Canaanites are still in the land. And so we see the, you know, there's some conquest that still happens. But then you know, your Bible probably says there around 27, failure to complete the conquest. Okay? So Joshua was charged with getting all the people out of the land. That doesn't happen. So we talked about cultural adaptation and everything. And then in chapter 2, what the writer does here is he basically says, this is everything that's about to happen. So he lays out in the rest of this book. So it's not like one, two, three goes consequentially. Two is a basically overview of what you're about to see, because what you're about to see is ongoing cycles of the exact same thing, but it gets worse and worse and worse. And the cycle goes like this: the Israelites sin, the Israelites get conquered and oppressed, the Israelites repent, God raises up a judge, the Israelites find freedom. The Israelites sin, the Israelites are oppressed, the Israelites repent, judge, you see, all the way through. But what you're going to find is that these judge, six judges get highlighted in the book of Judges. The first three do okay, the next three get worse and worse. So it goes pretty good, okay, bad, very bad, and then the end of this book is awful. You know, we're going to get there, okay? So that's the journey that we're about to go on. And so the first three judges are these three, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. They do pretty good, okay? Well done to those three. The next one is Gideon, okay? Now, it's interesting, because the way that we tend to teach the Bible here in the Western world, what we do is we jump into a few verses of someone like Gideon or Samson, and we're like, Gideon's great. Gideon is actually not great okay what you'll find is that first of all Gideon is a bit of a coward but that's fine Gideon overcomes his fear and everything and then God uses him to do an amazing victory for the Israelites but then something bad happens for Gideon which we don't really teach about at spring harvest or new wine or wherever you go okay and what he does is he realizes that some people didn't come and fight with him some Israelites and he gets so angry that he goes and kills his own people okay so that's Gideon okay so First three were good, Gideon did some good things, then a bit of a murderer, not so good. Then we have this guy called Jephthah, okay? Now Jephthah is a bit of like a kind of mafia leader, he's living up in the hills, and the elders of Israel come, they're being oppressed by some other Canaanites, and they come to him and they say, will you help us? Now he's an amazing leader, but the problem with Jephthah is he wins a battle, but he doesn't know God. And so, surrounded by all of these other influences of child sacrifice, he offers his own child to God to win the war. Right? Talk about cultural adaptation. He has moved so far away from understanding the God of his people that he thinks, oh, that's how they win. I'll do the exact same thing. And you read this story about Jephthah sacrificing his own child for victory. Okay? Not great. And then finally, we actually get this worst judge of all, Samson. Okay? And again, maybe you've had stories about Samson being good and you can read individual little bits where God uses Samson. The interesting thing is God uses every single one of these judges. There is a line for every single one where it says that empowered by the Spirit of God they did amazing things. But it's interesting that that doesn't actually mean that God rates their character. It's a challenge for us. Just because God uses someone doesn't mean that their character is actually in line with God. Right? God just... Tends to use people that he's got available to him. So Samson is arrogant, he's promiscuous, does all of these things, he lacks integrity, all of these things, he ends up just murdering everyone with this thing coming down. Do you see this like movement that goes through of sin, oppression, repentance, raising up a judge, but then they move forward and they never learn. And then actually what happens is you end up. And the word that they use in theology for this is apostasy. It's God, people turning away from God. But then finally you get to the very end of Judges and there's this phrase that the writer uses again and again which is meant to show you that there's kind of a real problem with what's going on here. And it's this line. And you see it um, all the way. The first time you see it is... I think in 20. And it says... Now, there was no king in those days, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Remember the presence, remember the promise, remember the posture. Okay? There was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then finally, we land in to 21, which is kind of this like culmination, this climax moment of how bad everything's got in which some of the tribes of God meet together and they want to find wives for another tribe. And if you read the story, we're not going to do it, you find that there's incredible sexual immorality and actually what comes, the very first civil war with the people of God. Because this moment, they have moved so far. But if you read all the way back, you know, I said that chapter 2, it talks about... So chapter 2 is this highlight where it explains everything that's going to go. So it talks about the cycles. There's two voices that I want to point out to you. And the first one is chapter 2, verse 10. And it says this. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Who did not know the Lord all the work that he had done for Israel. Secondly, so hold that verse. The second one, if you jump down to 16, to me, I think this is one of the most emotive verses in the Old Testament. It says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And then this verse, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. You hear the like emotion in that verse. They hoard after the other gods and did not bow down to them. So if you wonder like, how do we stay pure? How do we stay in this thing? They did not know the Lord, and they did not remember what He had done for Israel. How many here, little shameless plug, have downloaded the In a Room app that twenty four seven has? Yeah. So if you haven't, basically twenty four seven devised this app where well, we realise that people. What we found was that people actually really wanted to pray. There was just something about like, remembering to pray, like just having something constantly. And so we got this app that kind of helps you to organize your prayers and reminds you to pray and all of that thing. But one of the things that I really love about it is we, we got stuck as we were sitting down and like, working through the like, UX, or, like, the user experience of this app. And we we're thinking, it's actually a really complicated ethical, moral, theological question. How do people delete stuff? Right? It's like a silly thing, but what do you date? Like delete because it did happen, delete because it didn't happen, archive. So I spent many an hour trying to think through the implications of like what does the is it a little trash can? Is that quite like awkward for people if they've been praying? Like it's just a weird moment for me. But I realized that actually what wouldn't be amazing that actually you sometimes when God answers a prayer, you can say, ah, did God answer this prayer? And it gets fired into a whole other thing and then inbuilt into this app that you could have for years. It's just loads and loads of testimonies. It was amazing. Carla Harding she shares this story about she's been working 24 7 for like 10 years, and in her collective or a small group or whatever you call it, someone was like, oh, Can we just share a testimony of answered prayer? And she was like, uh, Yep, yeah, we can. I'm sure, there is one not sure what it is and then suddenly someone was like yeah and then and then she talks the story about how like she couldn't get pregnant for a long time and then jackson was born and everything but we are such forgetful people if you notice that all the way through the old testament it's remember 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 tell your kids have feasts and festivals that celebrate what god is going to do to you remember the presence remember the promise remember the posture and so I'd like to say, what are you doing to intentionally, you will forget what God is saying and what God is doing unless you actively and intentionally choose to remember it. So how do you build that into your daily rhythms of life? Where do you write them down? Some of the people that I really, really respect the most, they just, I know someone, one of the preachers I respect the most, he used to carry around before he had a phone a whole stack of like revision cards, just full of stories of what God has done. And so before he would speak, he'd just remember everything that God had done. Fill himself up with faith. So, what are you doing in building into your life, remembering? And then, secondly, it's a slightly awkward question, but what does it mean to like whore? What does that mean, word mean to whore after other gods? Any thoughts? If you really probe into that, this super emotive word that the writer of Judges has said: sell yourself out yeah, absolutely give yourself absolutely, to them. give yourself absolutely to them intimacy without covenant right, instant gratification and reward, you see that, that word is like summing up all of these things that the Israelites did talk about, um, if we get time we'll talk a little bit about idols a little bit later, but it's so interesting sometimes I think you can look back and be like man, the Israelites are so stupid You know, why would you, you've seen God do all of this stuff. Like, why would you follow a golden calf? But they weren't actually stupid people, right? So what is it? There was something, and we do the same today, even if we don't have a golden calf. And so we'll maybe return to that if we get time. But moving forward, so we moved through Judges. So we end Judges with this moment. Remember, Joshua said, like, what will you do? Will you obey God and see the blessing of God? Or will you do the opposite and see oppression come? And judges, we land into this horrible story of civil war, sexual exploitation and everything. And then we land into Samuel. And suddenly, leadership takes a turn for the better. Okay? And if you're interested, you should read through all of those. The Bible highlights all of the character flaws of all of those judges. Judges. It's really interesting. If you read through and look for it, it explains what all of their problems were. So Samuel. Samuel, we land in. Samuel is the prophet, and he is the last of the judges before kingship. We're about to see there's a monarchy going to be set up, which is Saul and David, which we won't get to, but that's the the second installment of the rise and fall of Israel. And so we land in, and I wondered if... Would someone mind reading for um, me? So we have Eli. Eli is a priest before the Ark of the Lord. And then we have Eli's worthless sons. And what I'd love to do is just compare Eli's worthless sons with Samuel. Because what you're going to see is that Eli's worthless sons, they kind of encapsulate all of the problems of Israel. Like they are little, they're like two individuals that kind of are like, "Ah, this is the problem. These are the metaphor, the simile of everything that's happening with the people of Israel. And so would someone read for me 1 Samuel 2, 12 to 21?
2: But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast, he won't accept all meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now, if you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen hair body. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons
1: Amazing. So we're going to look at Samuel in just a second, but Eli's sons—what some things that we've just learned about them? Scoundrels. They're scoundrels, absolutely scoundrels. They're entitled, so they believe that just because they are their father is the priest, that they deserve something. They steal, they exploit, they're arrogant, they're greedy. Right? Do you see kind of a little bit of the Israelites being highlighted in these? believing they're entitled, not spending time, forsaking the presence of the Lord, becoming greedy, handing themselves over. Did you see that? Okay, now now we're going to read about Samuel. And as I read this, I'd love you again. Think about what are some of the highlights, what are some of the character attributes that you're about to hear about Samuel. And Samuel was described as a faithful priest. I love that in his whole history, in years and years of bad judges and bad leadership. God is raising up this man, Samuel. And so we'll see if we can put them together at the end. So I'm going to read it and try and take note of some different things that we see about Samuel. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming in God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said... What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you more and more if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Okay, so in your little groups, what are some keys? What are some character things that we see that make Samuel different to so many that have come before and particularly to Eli's sons? amazing so any thoughts what do we see about Samuel here any keys I think the first one is in 3 verse 1 I love the fact that even when he didn't know the voice of the Lord right so even when he wasn't receiving anything how often did we come to worship just to receive something Regardless of that, he still ministered before the Lord. Right? Eli's sons were entitled but they were able to do so much, but Samuel stayed before the presence of the Lord even when he wasn't just gaining anything off the back of it. So prayer. Any others? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right at the end. Like he could have you know, vulnerable, obedient, like he does what the Lord commands him, even though Eli's worried. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, humility, obedience each time he gets up. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was listening. Right. He was listening to the voice of God. So do you see the contrast of the difference between Eli's sons, who kind of epitomized Israel at that time, to Samuel, what hopefully is coming, like this different king? Absolutely. So then we jump forward and Samuel stays as this prophet of the Lord, I love that line, he grows in favor before God and man. Just the same verses used of Jesus later on, meant to reflect the two things. But then we move into this state, and if you just jump forward, um, just to kind of bring this section to a bit of a close, if you move into chapter 8, this is the beginning of the call for kingship for the people of Israel, right? And before we jump into that, I just want to remind you what was the call? So I'm going to read from Exodus. So in Exodus, we see Moses, you might have talked about it when you're in this part, at Mount Sinai. God is kind of downloading to him what he's going to be. And it says this, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's what God was hoping. When he brought them out of Egypt, he was hoping that they would become a nation of priests, just like Samuel was before God, before the presence of the Lord. But then we see this ongoing story. They don't cast the Canaanites out. You get judges. They culturally adapt. They compromise. And then finally, Samuel is raised up. But then the Israelites call for this, and they call for a king. And Samuel becomes angry because that was never the plan. It was never a plan for there to be a king. But this is, and this is why, if we read it here. I'll read um, 8.19. Uh, so you've got this whole bit. So they ask for a king, and Samuel goes and prays. And um, it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Now notice, why do they want a king? That we may be like all other nations. Right? They were never called to be like the other nations. And that our king may judge us. God was always going to be their judge. And he may go out before us and fight our battles. What was the promise? What was the Jericho story? Yeah, that God would fight their battles. So do you see that suddenly the king is compromising on every promise that was given to them? This call to be a holy nation, they're like, no, 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 we don't want that. We want to be like everyone else, just give us a king. Right? And then what we find is that, obviously then plan B Becomes the amazing story of David and then eventually Jesus, who is the King of Kings. Do you see? So, kind of landing in, like this is the flow. This whole bit that we've looked at is this like flow of bad leadership landing into compromise. Does that make sense? All the way through. And so, where have we traveled if we go all the way back? So, we've landed in at Joshua, the death of Moses. Joshua is given this command to go into the promised land, to kind of charge, conquest, the whole area, not to culturally compromise. He meets the angel of the Lord. There's these two battles that prove that God isn't just going to bless them regardless of what they do. They're actually called to obedience. We see Jericho and Ai. They move through. They win some battles. They do well. Some people repent. But then at the end, Joshua divides up the tribes, but he gives them this final thing, like, what will you do? What type of people will you be? Will you follow the Lord or will you not? These judges rise up and they judge the different areas and the judges go from bad to worse and we see this cycle play out again and again of sin and oppression, repentance, deliverance, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. It's just ongoing and these judges become more and more compromised. And then finally what lands in is there's no leadership, there's no king, and everyone does what they see as right in their own eyes. Right? Apostasy comes into the people of God. Finally, it ends in the civil war, this ultimate low point for God's people. And so God raises up Samuel, who is different in every way. He's faithful. He's prayerful. He grows in favor before the Lord. And they come to Samuel and say, we want a king. And Samuel says, that was never the plan. It was never the plan. Why do you want a king? Because we want to be like other nations. We want someone to judge us and we want someone to fight our battles all of the promises. So you go all the way back to Joshua, it was remember the promise, remember the presence, remember the posture. They fail on every single one of those. And then finally, Saul gets appointed and that's where you're going to take up the story from next time. And so I wonder if we could kind of finish by where uh, back home, I lead the evening service for Emmaus and we always love to finish with two really simple questions. One, what is God saying to you? And two, what are you going to do about it? Right? What is God saying to you through all of this, and what are you going to do about it? And so maybe just, if you're an introvert, you might want to just do that quietly after prayer. If you're an extrovert, you might only work it out by tell, talking to someone else. That's absolutely fine. So I'm going to pray, and then maybe you can do whatever feels right for you to kind of land everything that we've learned today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your story that's played out through all of history. And we thank you, God, that even though we, write, or we read about these times where we have compromised, where we've wrestled with you, God, still your grace overtakes it all. God, we love the fact and we look hopefully even in this story for the coming Messiah, the King of Kings, the righteous leader who's going to lead us well. Lord Jesus, aware that even our own hearts become so easily compromised. We culturally adapt to the idols that we see around us. And so, God, I pray that as we study this story for each one of us here, would you talk to us today? How might we love you better? Follow you more fully? Lord, and so, Spirit, just ask that you'd be in this room. Spirit, would you be speaking to each one of us right now?
0: Oh